Hello, everybody. This is Dan Woods from earlyadopter.com. Today, we're going to do a podcast about what cloud data warehouse best fits your needs. Joining me are Raghu Chakravarti, Chief Product Officer of Actian, and Bill Westfall, VP of Customer Success and Professional Services at Actian. Raghu, would you say hello? Hello, this is Raghu Chakravarti. Excellent. Happy to have you with us. And now everybody knows your voice. And Bill, please say your name and, and what you do so that everybody knows who you are. Hello, this is Bill Westfall. It's a pleasure to be here uh, as heading a, up of the professional services and customer success. I'm engaged in helping customers uh, after the sale of our products and optimizing their use. Excellent. So today we're going to talk about a really interesting topic, which is how do you figure out which cloud data warehouse is best for you? And I think in order to do that, what we need to do is figure out, you know, what's the real difference between the cloud data warehouse opportunity and the typical data warehouse opportunity? Because I think too much people think that when you approach a cloud data warehouse, you're sort of lifting and shifting a data warehouse use case from on-premise into the cloud. And of course, that's possible, but that ignores a huge amount of potential that you have in the cloud for doing things differently, creating new patterns of work, uh, creating new ways of analyzing and using data, and also taking advantage of the new architectures in the cloud that allow you to perform a lot of the tasks that you do on, in the on-premise world a lot more efficiently. So we're gonna be talking with Raghu and Bill today about that. And uh, we've, we've recently done a couple papers with Actian, one on changing the concept of total cost of ownership about cloud data warehouses to total cost of usage, and the other about the five myths of cloud data warehouses. And, and we'll include links to those papers in the transcript to this podcast. So, Raghu and Bill, let's start with the first question, which is, what is the cloud data warehouse opportunity? You know, what do you guys see as the important um, potential of moving the data warehouse and moving analytics to the cloud. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, when customers think about data warehousing and specifically in the cloud, they're looking for a few new architectures as well as enablers that they want to do. So instead of the traditional lift and shift, uh, what they are looking for is uh, elasticity, that do dynamic elasticity. They're looking for performance at scale, and they're also looking for a hybrid design. Um, traditional data warehouses, uh, for example, typically lives on-prem, and they require uh, dedicated hardware and run sometimes on customized hardware. So the cost became um, truly, uh, you know, uh, unattainable at some point. Uh, and uh, the hybrid nature as well as the cloud data warehouses came into play at that point. Um, so from a performance at scale standpoint, it's really important for customers to scale to what they need during different parts of the day and during different workloads that are executing. And also they have to have the capability to contain costs and scale down. And typically the legacy data warehouses or the, the on-prem data warehouses are uh, priced for peak performance or peak uh, usage. So performance at scale is an important one. The second, th uh, second thing is uh, the hybrid by design. 
Um, a cloud data warehouse these days supports uh, data that runs um, in the cloud or data that's residing in the cloud, and also data that's uh, primarily live, uh, living on-prem due to security constraints as well as um, other constraints that don't let the customer move the data to the cloud. Um, so a hybrid design and a hybrid cloud data warehouse is an important concept uh, to address. And when you have these two, uh, you're really looking at a better cost for, for performance. And uh, those three um, factors, performance at scale, uh, hybrid design, and getting a better cost for performance is what uh, customers are looking for uh, these days in a cloud. And what, that's what they mean by a cloud data warehouse. Well, one of the things we talked about when we prepared for this podcast was the evolution of analytics. And there's a great slide that we're going to include in the transcript to this podcast that describes the evolution of analytics in terms of, uh, you know, two dimensions. One is the how IT-driven, user-driven, or automated the analytics are. And the other is the user base, whether it's business users, data analysts, data scientists, or intelligent applications. Uh, Bill, you had some interesting comments about how this progression of, of more sophistication in analytics actually made new demands on the data warehouse. What, what, what is the, the demands made by this evolution and why are cloud data warehouses able to meet them? Yeah, thanks, Dan. So uh, let me set some context. I had some early relationships with Bill Inman, for those that know Bill, in terms of his really the forefather of data warehousing. So Bill and I worked pretty closely together early on back, as I joke, when he was doing stick figures uh, for some of his, his early data warehousing um, white papers. But data warehousing has come a long way. Data demands have come a long way. And analytics, uh, the demands of analytics and helping customers, not just with some of those technical frameworks, the data warehousing created a whole new way to look at accessing information in new and creative ways. But what's happened over uh, almost the last 10 to 15 years as with the introduction of uh, Internet of Things, of machine learning, of uh, IoT, ML, and artificial intelligence, it's placing huge demands now on the frame, their architectural framework companies are having to consider uh, not just data warehousing in the cloud, but as my associate Raghu mentions, that a lot of companies need to be able to access information that can't be or won't be for at least the foreseeable future moved into the cloud. So analytics is becoming critical to, ha to have the ability to bring together all that information regardless of where it lies and use it in new and creative ways to look at the B2B, that is the business to business and the business consumer um, opportunities and, and use it in new and creative ways to create new services and products from a strategic perspective, help the companies. So as everyone probably understands then, as those demands for increasing data and in, increasing architectural complexity, that creates uh, ecosystems that in some cases are very difficult or can be very difficult to manage. And I think Acting has a suite of products that are, enable us to tie that together, to look at federated queries uh, across the various platforms, regardless of where the data lies. 
So Dan, I don't know if I answered it as directly as per perhaps you wanted, but I, th I think that gives a, a, an additional perspective on what some of these large and medium-sized and, and many other high-growth small companies are faced with in trying to use analytics for strategic purpose. Well, let me restate what I think you said there and also call out a couple of the implications. I think what you're essentially saying is that in a modern sort of data management and analytics landscape, you're going to have some data repositories and, and analytical capabilities that are going to be on premise because the data by, uh, because it has certain properties need to stay there. You're going to have other data warehouse and, and analytical capabilities that are going to be in the cloud, but you're going to want to create unified pipelines so that you can treat that landscape as if it's one unified repository. And then if you do that, then you'll create, be able to create pipelines that can support what you talk about in the slide, the statistical modeling, the machine learning to achieve, you know, the, the, the predictive, descriptive, and pres prescriptive uh, use cases uh, by creating a pipeline that, that, that can, you know, put work wherever it needs to be in the cloud or on premise, but then treat the whole thing as a unified system. That, that, that seems to be what you're arguing. It, it is, Dan, thanks. Nicely summarized. And what it does do then is make it so that with the right infrastructure, the right architectural framework, that, like what Actium has, allow that access to be mostly transparent to the business users. Because the last thing the business, the C-suite, um, and some of the business decision makers want to do is worry about how that all gets tied together. Excellent. Well, now let's move on to the next question which is why are cloud data warehouses different from on-premise enterprise data warehouses? And we have a couple of really nice slides uh, that were part of a deck you gave in London about the enterprise data warehouse and then the evolving information paradigm. And of course, we're gonna put these slides in the transcript, but why don't you talk through you know, the, the, the kind of basic difference between the enterprise data warehouse context and then the, what, 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 what is called the evolving information paradigm. You know, why are they different? What's going on in the first case and how has it changed in the second? Well, again, I think it starts with some of the early foundations of what data warehousing was intended to address. And it was really looking at providing a simple framework, a different way of looking at a relational database technology so that now you can focus it on marketing or finance or various business channels within, a, within an organization. Um, then what's happened, and that was really, as the name implies, data warehousing. So data in and of itself is not very intelligent. So it was left to the end users, to IT, to really build out frameworks then for that data to be accessed in a creative informational framework. And that, so I'm making the distinction here between data and information data being basically just data, raw data, information being really the intelligent compilation of that information. So what's happened now in the evolving information paradigm is now many more repositories of information have come into that framework. As mentioned already, machine learning, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, and that's just a few. But there's there was a huge build out of Hadoop, for example, in many companies uh, as the next panacea. And there are companies with terabytes, if not petabytes, information just sitting there, mostly unused. So to your point, Dan, it's, it's very critical for companies then to spend the time to look at all of those data sources, um, whether it's real-time ingestion of that information and that data to create in, informative types of discovery. 
um, or whether it can be it can reside on premise with a combination of in the cloud. So the, the evolving information paradigm is really to look at adapt and expand the current field of vision based on all those data sources um, and having the tools, the technology to tie it together. And that's what's key here is a lot of companies are having to create some very complex views and infrastructure to do that. Acting has a way to do that um, behind the scenes. So again, so that the business decision makers don't have to think so much about the architectural framework. But it leads to the expansion of those data sources and access to those data sources, which then ultimately drives much more enhanced, informative information decision making. Got it. So the idea here is that you go from a simpler world in which enterprise applications are being consolidated into a data warehouse, then you put on top of that, you know, different tools, data discovery, spreadsheets, whatever you have, you know, that allow you to kind of create, you know, analytical systems out of it. In the modern world, you have data, many more repositories of data, and you, 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 they're going, many more sources of data and many more repositories. And the idea is you want to be able to unify those in data pipelines to bring data together for purpose, to, to create it in purpose-built forms that then support, you know, uh, different types of applications. And then the number of type of applications is also, you know, created. And, and, and this to me seems to be the impetus to kind of, for the data ops movement is the idea, is the recognition that you've got so many more data sources, so many more data pipelines you're going to have to support. If we have to do this in, you know, with handcrafted, super low level uh, sorts of systems, uh, you know, we're never going to be able to support it at scale. And, and we need to productize this management of this complexity somehow. And, and, and I think that every single cloud data warehouse lays claim to that, 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 uh, that idea of we're going to cast a wider net over a wider number of sources and bring them together in a unified way. That seems to be one of the, the, the differences between, you know, the enterprise data warehouse, which was all about whatever we can get through ETL, we're going to get, and the enterprise data warehouse, which, I mean, the, the cloud data warehouse, which says, look, we're going to get after object storage. We're going to get data in, you know, other types of data warehouses. We're going to get data, you know, from, uh, you know, on-premise systems, and we're going to have data that's being loaded in, in ETL and, and provided us to, to us through a variety of other means. All of that's going to be unified in one access method so you can create a lot of different pipelines out of it. So, yeah, I mean, Dan, it's, it's really important, right? Like, so architecturally speaking, uh, cloud is bringing this whole notion of bringing compute to where the data lives so that you can uh, really do faster processing and produce insights faster. And the way you do that is federation and federation is enabled through the data pipelines that you're talking about, right? Um, to enable data pipelines uh, to be built and uh, expose data in more of an API format, um, the cloud data warehouses are now building this whole notion, architecturally speaking, as the data fabric. So in, in Actian and Avalanche, we have a data fabric based on Spark that's built in and voila, like, you know, right, right on top of Spark, you can start building data pipelines, leave data where it is, and uh, in their best of breed locations as well as best of breed uh, platforms. And you bring it all together in this new enterprise or cloud data warehouse format through pipelines and expose them in a single format, in a single cleansed way, so that uh, you can build pipelines on top of it 
or consume the pipelines that the cloud data warehouse has already exposed via either Spark or Presto or any of these standard mechanisms. Exactly, and yeah. so, go, go, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, sorry, and just to interject one other thing too, is with when we start looking at, uh, and uh, when we move away from the concept of data, just unintelligent data, to this concept of information, more and more companies now are realizing that this information is key to building new strategies and products and services to their own end customers. What that's led to is a huge upsurge in the number of end users. That's why as companies start to look at these data warehousing platforms, whether it's on-premise or in the cloud or hybrid solutions that Actin supports, concurrency becomes critical. So it has to be a scalable solution, architectural framework, because now, as you can imagine, when you start, like you said earlier, Dan, you start tying together all these, these repositories of, of raw data into an information intelligence system, now more and more users are going to come online and say, hey, count me in. Oh, look at this. We, we just hired 40 new data scientists that can help us start looking at this in new and creative ways. So concurrency needs to be a major factor in that decision. Got it. So now, you, in other words, you know, just being able to do, get the right answer isn't enough. You have to be able to get the right answer in a snappy way in order to really keep all this, the, 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 this, this going. Absolutely. So now, if you have this ability to extend the data fabric you know, across a much larger data landscape, if you have the ability to then you know, query it in a unified manner and then get that answer quickly, um, you now are able to do different kinds of, 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 of working based on that, that paradigm and that those capabilities. Could we go through and talk about, you know, the, the different kinds of, of sort of patterns that are made possible by the cloud data warehouse? And, and, and there's a list of them here that we'll also include in the transcript. Uh, uh, but, you know, it starts with the emergence of database automation. Could you Talk about each one of these in this list and explain, you know, why, why it's uh, uh, a new, why we're breaking new ground and, 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 and how cloud data warehouses support it. Yeah, so one, one of the main um, things is in a cloud data warehouse that, you know, it's easy to use. It's easy to operate, it's easy to consume, and it's, it's easy to integrate with. And uh, that's all brought about by this whole notion of a managed service, right? Uh, gone are the days where customers hire DBAs and they get hardware and, and install all of that and operate and make sure everything's up to, uh, up to snuff and everything. But these days in a, in a cloud data warehouse, the emergence of database automation um, really has been spurred by this offering of a managed service. Uh, you know, we offer Actin Avalanche as a managed service in Azure or AWS. We provide everything from updating and patching and deployment and elastic scaling and performance tuning and so on and so forth that's totally automated and the customers just consume the service whether it's via a python api or a sql interface or whatever it might be um, they just consume the service and everything is automated in the background and if anything goes down uh, a cloud operations model kicks in and um, there is automatic uh, you know dr and ha and those, those effects kick in. And without me as a customer having to learn, manage, and do all of these things um, using uh, my own uh, folks or my own people or my own processes. 
Well, now the other thing that 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 seems interesting about these these uh, capabilities is where you create functions that do really complex things that can be sort of invoked. And one of the the the, the functions that I've seen, you know, in your product and in others is the idea of of, of in database machine learning algorithms being able to be run. And so somebody can sort of extend a SQL statement with a pretty powerful algorithm, you know, not having to worry about the details and then get the results of that. I mean, how does that, how does that work? So that, that's an important one, right? Like, so uh, analytics, uh, at at least advanced analytics is such a complex exercise that uh, only a few data scientists in a company uh, can afford to learn and be, be knowledgeable in. But there, for every data scientist, uh, there are maybe a hundred business analysts who are data savvy, but who are not algorithm savvy. So, in database, uh, you know, UDF-based uh, advanced analytics implementations are really taking um, a huge uh, play here. So, if I can expose, let's say, an advanced analytics algorithm such as a K-means, which is an advanced. Um, uh, analytics operation to do clustering or, or random forest to make decision tree based uh, things, right? Like these these kind of advanced analytics algorithms can be implemented and the in directly in the database and be called via SQL as a function, and you pass it uh, inputs and outputs, and it automatically now enables a business analyst uh, and not just a data scientist uh, to do advanced analytics algorithms and. Uh, and implement that right into an application they are building, right? Or into any kind of insights that they're building or dashboards, for example. And that really speeds up the the notion of getting advanced analytics back into, you know, day-to-day insights and operationalize it pretty quickly. You know, so that that is becoming a really important factor in cloud data warehouses. And imagine the speed, right? Like if you do an in-database implementation of an algorithm, that'll be a lot faster than pulling data out into an R studio or into a SaaS application and then perform the analytics there and, and push the result back into the database. Got it. And then now the databases themselves are becoming more powerful in certain cases by adding GPU uh, 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 processing to them. And, and also, especially in the machine learning capabilities, you know, distributing the, those, the processing of those over huge gangs of, of, of GPUs. Uh, is that the kind of thing that's happening sort of under the hood automatically in a lot of cloud data warehouses? Yes, absolutely. And what uh, the cloud data warehouses like us, we are doing is we are embedding uh, technologies like TensorFlow and H2O.ai directly into the database and have in-database calls to these APIs. And these libraries, uh, leverage GPUs. They also leverage uh, ASICs, tensors that are built right on top of ASICs, which are obviously uh, more uh, cost effective. And all of these libraries are now supported in cloud infrastructures like an AWS and an Amazon natively uh, based on uh, instances that these cloud service providers provide to support these libraries, whether it's a GPU-based or it's an ASIC-based or uh, even FPGA-based uh, algorithms. And this is really powering, and actually uh, this, this whole notion of democratizing data science is happening through uh, these kind of uh, you know, implementations built directly into the cloud data warehouse. So you can essentially call out from a cloud data warehouse to a TensorFlow or whatever service that is then being powered by 
dedicated special purpose GPU or ASIC or FGPPA uh, um, uh, hardware uh, that, that then gets you a really fast result. That's absolutely right. Like, so uh, all of these cloud data warehouses have this whole notion of two things. One is uh, user-defined functions. So user-defined functions is where the call out to a TensorFlow or H2O is built. And secondly, um, you know, the call uh, to a H2O or TensorFlow, it has to be accompanied by a certain amount of data, whether it's a training data set or it's some kind of a scoring data set. Um, that is enabled via the data fabric that is built in into the architecture. So you make the call, send, uh, uh, you know, pair up the, the call for an API into external uh, libraries along with the data set via the data fabric and um, which is high speed, by the way, so you enable really fast computation uh, through, uh, through these new architectures and cloud data warehouses built out uh, to call, um, you know, external functions. Got it. Now, of course, uh, you know, we're, we, cloud data warehouses, by definition, use more cloud computing. They, we've talked about how they, they support, the, the best ones support hybrid operational uh, uh, an analytic, you know, distribution, uh, so you can have a cloud version, a on-premise version, and you can treat them all as if they're one, you know, unified fabric. But uh, one of the other things that I think is really interesting is the way that most of these cloud data warehouses uh, are able to reach out to other similar repositories or processing uh, uh, capabilities, and the integration is pretty tight. So you mentioned earlier Presto. And so Presto is really good at doing certain types of queries off over massive amounts of data. And then you also mentioned Spark earlier, and, and, and Spark is really good at creating certain types of data pipelines. And then if you can see those as components in a distributed data processing framework, and then again, you know, use a, a cloud data warehouse to kind of be the, the master pipelining, you know, kind of center where the intermediate results are all, you know, collected and managed you really create a powerful um, toolkit to create uh, uh, pipelines that then can be managed without lots of, uh, of, of the complexity uh, that you used to have to do with lots of scripts and things like that. You know, could you comment a little bit about you know, where, where we've come from and where we're going with these dis distributed data processing frameworks? Uh, yeah, Dan, uh, so you just described this whole notion of data federation, right? So uh, it's, now, uh, you know, data needs to be distributed. Data has to live in the cloud. So, for example, a lot of the marketing work happens in the cloud, whether, whether it's uh, campaign management or ABM or all of these, um, these kind of marketing-driven approaches are based on data that resides in the cloud and where elastic scaling really helps bring a lot of compute um, to to driving these campaigns. So the data needs to live in the cloud for marketing. On the other hand, behavioral data that I'm collecting about a customer and I'm really applying machine learning technology to, to really understand customer patterns, their values and their attributes, that data is going to be primarily on-prem because I want to protect that data. I don't want to expose it too much. It's got like PII, it's got sensitive uh, components to it. So I'm going to keep that on-prem, but you know what? I need to really understand how my marketing campaigns are performing in certain regions in, uh, and also combine that with customers. So there has to be a federated query that needs to happen 
in a cloud data warehouse environment, which joins data from the cloud that resides in the cloud with on-prem data and produces some business insights that really helps me drive and make decisions on what campaigns work or what don't. So the all of this is getting built on top of pipelines such as Spark and Presto, whether it's SQL-based or Python-based or R-based, doesn't matter. Now I can expose these uh, insights as APIs on top of these pipelines like Spark and Presto that can be called from a Tableau or can be called from any application that I'm building my insights on top of and leverage that to then create a constant feedback loop to make my marketing campaigns better. So every insight that I produce that I learn from is going to be pushed back into the next campaign that I'm running tonight or tomorrow night and makes that campaign a lot better and more targeted that way. Well, so yes, this distributed data processing frameworks are becoming really popular and it's truly being enabled by the cloud then. That's excellent. So uh, just to refresh everybody's memory, uh, we're, we're here today talking about uh, what cloud data warehouse best fits your needs. And we're trying to talk through all the dimensions that define cloud data warehouses. Uh, we're now going to be covering a couple um, uh, sort of uh, uh, mopping up issues that I want to cover. But then we're going to go into an interesting part of this, uh, which is the lessons that Actian has learned with respect to strategy, migration, integration, staffing, governance, and oversight related to the cloud data warehouse implementations you've seen. But before we get there, I think that's going to be one of the best parts of this podcast. But before we get there, I want to ask you know, two questions that I think are germane to figuring out the, the fit of a, a cloud data warehouse. The first is, why is TCO an outmated, outmoded metric for cloud data warehouses? And we we, as we said, we will link to the paper on uh, what we propose as the better metric, which is total cost of usage. But, but why do you think TCO is no longer, you know, something that, that really describes the way to understand, you know, uh, the, 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 the cost and benefit that's coming from a cloud data warehouse? Yeah, Dan, this is Bill. I'll take that one. So, uh, obviously, the general principle of total cost of ownership is still somewhat applicable, but in the cloud now, because of the uh, infra inf infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and now as more and more data warehousing as a service come online, it's more of a managed services offering. So now what you're, what you're considering is you pay as you go. There's, you don't have the complex infrastructure that you have to manage yourself with the network engineers and the database engineers, et cetera that you either manage or that you pay a company to manage on a, in an on-premise solution. So in a, as a service framework, then really you're paying as you go. And there's different pricing models for that. We don't need to go into it here, but um, there is this concept acting supports where you've got the compute separate from the storage. So you can, you pay for storage, you pay for compute in a different way. So this, this new model now, total cost, the cost of, usage is really you don't have all those other cost elements to concern with now as a reminder 
uh, Actin supports this hybrid approach. So there are still on-premise data repositories that aren't going away anytime soon. Many companies are still trying to decide how best to leverage the, the cloud. So uh, TCO is still an important element of looking at the overall cost of, of running and operating this, these information repositories. But in general, the, uh, uh, the usage models, the pricing models are different for the cloud. And you know, you can Google and find any number of, of, of appropriate models to consider. Well, you know, and that leads to the next question I want to answer, which is, what are the key differences in cloud data warehouses? Because sometimes I, I talk to CIOs or CTOs and they say, yeah, I'm just going to get a cloud data warehouse. And, and they, they mention, you know, Snowflake or Amazon Redshift or, you know, the, the Microsoft offering or Actian and, or, or, or Teradata. And then they just, you know, yeah, I'll get one of them, whatever. And, and it, it just seems to me kind of ridiculous because these are really different products with really different DNA. And the experience of using them, the pricing models are all really different. What do you see as the key differences in the way that C cloud data warehouses are, are constructed? Why, are, why is there, are they not all the same? Yeah, they, there are multiple choices here. You're right, right? Like, um, so let's, let's go back to the legacy data warehouses, right? Like there was an Exadata, Oracle Exadata, uh, which is uh, architecturally speaking is an SMP, which means I can scale it vertically to whatever, however big uh, a situation uh, of however big a hardware can, can scale to. And then there was MPP and Teradata pioneered MPP. So I can scale horizontally and keep growing that way, right? Um, so the same kind of concepts apply in the cloud data warehouses as well. So if you think about it, what is Snowflake going after? So Snowflake is really going after the business units within large enterprises use case, which is the long tail use case in the sense, concurrency is not that important. You know, I have maybe four or five users hitting it. Like I have, you know, a few terabytes of data lying around that I want to quickly analyze. But I want it to be easy. I don't want to go, you know, manage and maintain and monitor all of these things. Right? I just want to quickly consume it, and within a business unit, I, I can produce a dashboard and and uh, you know show some insights and make my boss happy, right? Whereas uh, when you really want to productionize it, uh, productionize this at an enterprise level, you really need to think about concurrency. You need to think about scale and. And also, you got to be having that capability of elasticity so that you can manage cost at scale and not just keep ballooning up the cost like how a legacy data warehouse would do it, right? So not all cloud data warehouses are the same. You have to really think about your particular use case and fit the, the warehouses uh, or make, a, make the right choice in terms of data warehouses. Um, cost is important, but like, like we said in the previous topic, cost per query, cost per execution, and the opportunity cost is a lot more important than just measuring everything by total cost of ownership. Um, and eventually, as you scale things out and you start really building out uh, your data warehouse in the cloud, you have to eventually scale for concurrency. So concurrency becomes important not right away, but in a few months when you really want to expand the usage and make it available for hundreds of users to use the insights that you produce. So those are some of the important things to, to look at and what uh, the, the warehouses are building out there right now. Excellent. Um, so now we're gonna move on to, I think what's gonna be some of the more interesting uh, and valuable 
uh, uh, findings from this podcast. Uh, we got the slides that I mentioned earlier, and we're going to include those in the transcript. But, and Bill, you gave these slides, I think, at a London event. And uh, I just want to go through and talk through each one of them in turn. And basically, these are all the lessons that, that you have learned uh, from watching your customers implement cloud data warehouses in, and implement hybrid uh, you know, data warehouses and use, you know, create an effective a data fabric. So let's just start with the strategy slide. You know, what are, are what were the learnings that you, you had in terms of cloud data warehouse strategy and analytics strategy? Sure, Dan, let me set, so just take one moment to set some context so why I feel um, this is an appropriate topic for me. So just to be clear to the audience, I'm not part of sales. Uh, I've, been, I've been managing, running, operating professional service organizations for 25 plus years. In, the, in those years, I've seen the evolution of, uh, of people, process, and technology, and how each of those elements come together to supporting business needs, really. Ultimately, data, the information that's contained in that data, and the usage and architectural framework all serves one purpose, and that is to help customers become more competitive, introduce new products and services. So, Acting's Lessons Learned are really a foundational uh, lessons learned based on those experiences, uh, in my experiences over those many years. So back to the question of strategy. So in general, um, as I mentioned to you, customers need to be careful about looking at the next best bright shiny object, right? It's, it's easy to have a vendor come in and say, we're the fastest, we're the smartest, we're the most cost effective. Ultimately, you need to take the time to evaluate what your needs are and as Raghu mentioned, you have to be careful with the scaling, the, the, the concurrency, the number of users, because it may seem bright and shiny when you first get it out of the box, but then as, you, as your organization starts to leverage it and it grows, it may become more costly than you would expect, and it may become more complex. Um, so that's, that's one of the first elements that, that really come to mind here is it, it's it's not always just about the first impressions of something that that you open up on Christmas Day or um, and it looks great and then you don't use it anymore because it becomes too expensive or complicated. So so I I challenge the listeners to to please note that um, the other elements of of what you, some of these lessons learned is that um, you know the there's no simple answers to what what this architecture modernization you'll hear that term thrown around a lot um, it, it really you really these companies need to take the time to to understand their business needs tactically um, architecturally and then what is it that's going to help us evolve to the next stage of our own evolution right uh, and really looking at future future proofing your architecture and the staffing needs and the processes that go into supporting it. That takes time. Well, give you know, me an again, example don't just... of, 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 of a future-proofed aspect of an architecture. Yeah, Dan. Uh, so let's take uh, the concrete example, let's say, of migrating from a Teradata, right? Um, so it's one of the hardest data warehouses to migrate from and uh, modernizing the whole thing. So what we are doing is you know taking a phased approach 
so what we uh, what we are saying is this you know don't mix migration and bi- this is the biggest lesson that we have learned as a company is don't mix migration with modernization when you do that that that's how uh, you know these modernization exercises fail right so the first step is to actually do a lift and shift scope out that project so that you have the right set of hardware and you have the right choice to migrate from, whether it's a hybrid cloud solution or a a completely a a cloud-based, a public cloud-based solution. You do the migration first. And in this process, uh, you need two things, a good partner in terms of technology, you know, who the cloud data warehouse vendor is, and secondly, a good partner in terms of SI, right? Like you need a good SI partner to help you through the whole automation of the migration, as well as some of the manual challenges that you will deal with, and then you do the migration. So now that you've done a lift and shift, then comes the whole notion of modernization, which is all about modernizing your pipelines, using the infrastructure that the new cloud uh, data warehouse provides to you, whether it's pipelines based on Spark or Presto or other mechanisms, and creating new opportunities and new insights Uh, based on the data that's already been migrated over, and you create new opportunities and new, uh, you know, newer insights based on the pipelines that uh, that you're now able to write. So initially, it's a lift and shift, and don't be uh, satisfied with just the migration. Now you modernize by writing, um, you know, API-based access to data. Now you can do uh, real-time access instead of the legacy system supporting batch-based uh, access. And uh, now you can really, uh, you know, get into the next level and scale your operation and elastically scale, by the way, thereby having a control over cost as well. Got it. So the idea is that once you've completed the migration, you create an environment in which a lot of the... Uh, sort of potential problems of growth are factored out, you know, because Correct. you have you know, these other features. And so we've covered, uh, I guess, the migration and strategy sections. Uh, let's move on to the integration uh, idea. What are the lessons learned re- related to integration? Yeah, one thing I wanted to add before we leave migration is um, I had many, many customers over the years under underestimate the time and the cost of migration. Don't underestimate that. I mean, it's always going to take longer and cost more than you expect. And you really need to understand the vendor that you're partnering with, the data warehouse and the cloud vendor, because there are a number of hidden costs. Uh, A lot of times you'll have to bring in a third-party team to do the actual data migration. So just keep that in mind. As far as integration, You know, part of the challenge for a lot of companies when they're looking at the cloud is they they have a suite of their own BIs and ETL tools and all of these tools that they already have in motion, right? Um, You really need to take a hard look at the platform in the cloud to ensure that, that they support those tools that you already have through APIs or integration, existing integrations. Otherwise, you're going to spend a lot more money either shifting to a different tool or having to write some of your own custom code to, to tie into those tools. So that's, that's pretty key. Um, one thing that seems obvious, but I, I, I can't tell you having managed a number of help desks over the years, poorly written queries on-premise are still poorly written queries in the cloud, albeit they may run a little bit faster, but I can't tell you a number of times people uh, call up and say, hey, I thought this was supposed to be faster only to find out the query itself is, wasn't 
written properly from the beginning. Uh, and then one of the, the biggest ones is before you sign up before for any type of data warehousing, the cloud or hybrid solution, please understand the release schedules and what type of features um, are and how often those features are updated. Because as mentioned earlier, it's a managed service and a lot of these cloud providers update their software automatically behind the scenes, which is one of the values in the, um, that you don't have to manage it, but it can also lead to impacts uh, on your own software, your own integrations, um, and that can result in a lot of downtime or frustrations from your end users, your data scientists, your business users, when things all of a sudden don't work because something got pushed in, in, a, uh, in a hasty manner or on a weekly schedule. So just be careful there. Yeah, no, I, I recently ran into that with uh, the uh, uh, Zoom uh, uh, video conferencing that we're using right now to do this podcast where they had uh, introduced a new feature that, you know, everybody else, everybody was, was really upset about and they, they realized that they had to kind of go back and fix it very quickly. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, they, they were just doing it because they were doing exactly what you said. They're just moving things forward and without understanding the implications. And that, that can be one of the downsides of this, you know, uh, not having an understanding of, uh, and not having to do the, the, the upgrades and migrations. Now, there, you've got some really interesting points here in the staffing lessons learned. Uh, you know, what have you uh, seen uh, as the reality of, you know, the way your staff change when you adopt a cloud data warehouse? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges is that for companies that have the ability to move everything into the cloud, then that opens up the question of what do I do with existing staff, you know, network engineers, you know, you've got a number of operators, et cetera. So um, some forethought has to be given to how you reallocate those resources um, or if you do that. So that, that's an obvious one. I think one of the bigger one is uh, bigger issues is, is that a lot of the, the, the true data warehousing as a service cloud providers, and I don't mean to single any one of them, will tell you that they, they offer zero administer, administration cloud platforms. There's no such thing, right? Because in the end, you still will need staff to monitor, understand those environments, even in the cloud, even under a fully managed services platform. Because there's always gonna be reason to have people that are monitoring through their, your own dashboards, um, what's happening, the growth, the, uh, the, the queries, uh, how they're impacted by concurrency, as, as Ragu already mentioned, right? There's a number of things. So there is no such thing as zero administration. Um, you have to dig into that term a little bit more closely, which impacts resources, of course. Having people that can, that can stay on top of the performance of the platform as concurrency and the data uh, growth increases, whether you're adding now in new machine learning or IoT or, or what have you. Got it. And then uh, what are the, uh, the, the lessons of re with related to governance and oversight? Yeah, just to wrap, um, I think this is, this is sometimes overlooked. Um, the most successful implementations in the 20-some years I've been helping companies with bringing together people, process, and technology are most optimized and successful when you can bring together uh, oversight and governance team that is comprised of IT. With, even if IT has initiated some of these, these considerations moving to the cloud or hybrid solutions with the business, with the 
executives, leadership, and oversight. And then most oftentimes, a lot of these uh, companies forget to bring in some of the vendors. Um, you might have, you know, an offshoring leadership team that's providing resources. You might have a tool vendor that you're using, a Tableau, for example, that that or Looker that provides some of your key executive or leadership reporting. So just keep that in mind that you should have a team that's overseeing it, that you've got the right stakeholders all committed to the success of the project with an eye towards the future state. Because it's too often overlooked that we're just moving to the cloud and then people start asking what now and how do we move this and what do we do with this, all these on-premise data repositories and when, when can we get those to the cloud. So it's it's a lot more complicated, and I think some of the um, some of the cloud data warehouse providers lead you to believe. Well, and also the the, the vision of the the data warehouse, you know, was sort of like set by the idea of the product. And in the cloud, you've got a new vision, and each cloud data warehouse supports different kinds of capabilities. So you've got a much larger sort of vision white space to define yourself into. Uh, uh, and and uh, you really need to do the thinking about that. Well, you know, this has been a hugely interesting podcast for me. You've really covered a lot of ground and I think helped, you know, illuminate a lot of the different dimensions of how to get the cloud data warehouse with the right fit and also a, a lot of the different learnings that you guys have, have, have found about once you do adopt a cloud data warehouse, how do you make it work? So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, thanks, Dan. It's been great.